Topics and opinions expressed in the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4CY Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4CY Radio or its employees or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4CY Radio. Hello and welcome to It's Your Voice, the show that hosts enriching conversations in diversity. My name is Bahia Yaxan. I am a core alignment coach, an emotional wisdom training specialist, and a diversity educator. And I'm delighted and honored to have a platform that I can use every week to uh, showcase innovative ideas that are not uh, mainstreamed yet. Um, perspectives and voices from different backgrounds. And I always learn every single week and I hope my listeners and viewers are enjoying this as much as I am. I have designed programs and classes that help others recognize patterns that we have internalized that are biased and hurt other people so that we can learn how to step out of them and really increase the joy in our lives by creating new ways of seeing other choices, developing new patterns that are more inclusive. So if you're interested in any of my, my uh, classes or workshops, you can go to knowwhatyouwantcoaching.wordpress.com. And I also um, am just really delighted today to have a guest who is a very innovative, um, brilliant thinker who has developed several things but before i bring on my today's guest because this is the last wednesday of um women's history month the month recognizing women in history i wanted to i have to mention the name of a woman truly making history right now and that is the supreme court justice nominee katanji brown jackson who is currently a judge in the dc circuit court of appeals um and I just really feel a deep honor um, for her and admiration, not only because she's exceptionally well qualified to become a Supreme Court Justice, um, but also she's clearly demonstrated maintaining incredible grace and, digni and dignity under pressure. So um, there's a shout out to her. And now I get to introduce 
um, Lynn Brian Phipps, who has done a number of amazing things. She studied design at Auburn University and the Rhode Island School of Design. And long before um, sustainability practices in architecture were recognized, she she had been designing and um, has a, like, a degree in the highest standard of sustainability in design, and which I want to um, talk about. And also she was the founder of a school called the Compass School, which was one of the first or perhaps the first project-based learning schools that also emphasized the importance of sustainability and taking care of the planet. And now the focus of today's program is uh, an, an innovative therapy called integrative equine therapy. That was her most recent brainchild. <laughs> and um, we have some photos. And I just want to mention now that one reason that um, I'm excited about it is because it, it's extremely effective with PTSD and the, the head of the board of Beachwood, Beachwood Integrative Equine Therapy, um, uh, Whitney Bailey was very enthusiastic about this because it is so effective for combat veterans. And um, Lynn, thank you for being here. There's so much more I could say about your background. Um, and I want you to go ahead and add what you want to now at the beginning before we dive into our conversation. No, I think you did a wonderful job, Bahia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's it's an honor to have you here. And I it's got to be here. <laughs> so I have so many questions. It's so exciting. And I also, um, we do have some photos which we'll bring up in a little bit, thanks to Roxy, our wonderful sound engineer. So I think um, one, one fun place to start is, first of all, asking, how did this idea come to you? And, and I know you mentioned that equine therapy, um, there are other forms that are on the ground, but to me and probably to a lot of people, the idea of on the ground, the people being on the ground is like really new. Um, and yet yours is still unique. So I'm, I always love to hear how did this come to you? I know you're also, you've been an equestrian for many, many years. So if you could just start with that story, that was sure. Sure, absolutely. Um, so for me, the power of horses healing came to me because of one particular horse. And if you go to our website and look at our staff, we list our horses and our human staff um, equally. And um, but the first horse that that really was so demonstrative about the work that he did is Raja. He's a um, we work only with warm bloods in our particular therapy. And he is, um, his sire is the top breeding stallion in the US the years during the time period when he was born. And um, so his name is Raja. He's by Royal Prince, Raja be, being Royal Prince um, in India. And that's part of the, the breeding and the bloodlines and the way that we track bloodlines and everything has everything to do with how we know these horses. Um, Raja, I was looking for my, for my first upper level dressage partner. Um, dressage, a lot of people think of as dancing with horses. It's also originates in, um, 
the movements that we trained to take people to war. So back in the 15th and the 13th centuries, um, when people were protecting their boundaries and warring over principalities, so you sort of think knights in shining armor kind of days, um, these were the horses that were very intentionally bred to carry a rider into battle. And the mm. reason that that's relevant is because anybody who thinks that we control a horse from the back of their body um, when they're well-trained, yes, but a horse is way more powerful than any human. And if they're not, if they're not interested in doing what you're asking them to do, they will go the other way and they will with or without you. So, um, so the breeding and the ability for a horse to override their own fight or flight instincts, um, to take somebody to war is pretty significant. Mm. Um, but when I was first looking for my upper level dressage partner, I was not thinking about therapy at all. Um, I was thinking about what horse I would want to dance with. And um, I was, I had, we'd had a lot of, of what we thought were the right partners. When you do this, you do it with a trainer and with a veterinarian and everybody's got opinions and everyone's watching videos and everybody, you know, you have to go try the horse and then they have to watch. And, and when you come to consensus, then the veterinarian does a vet check and it's kind of like, think of it like a home inspection. If they don't pass, you don't buy the horse. So you get, you get very, um, excited about, you start to develop the idea of being a partner with this animal. And then it, you know, it either happens or it doesn't. So we were on our fourth or fifth, um, try horses didn't pass the vet. And, um, and a friend of mine said, I, I was like, I, there were two horses in this particular barn with one of the U S team members and who had started both of them. And, um, and I didn't know which one. I was very anxious. I was a little bit gun shy at that point because we'd had so many, you know, what we thought was going to be the horse and it wasn't. And a friend, I called a friend and she said, well, have you asked them? And I thought, well, that's brilliant. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> and so I went out and I had a horse. I know, exactly. So I went out and I went out. They were both in two very, each of their own very large, like two acre paddocks. And I went out for the with the first one, which is chestnut, like a redhead. And I hung with him and I was like, yeah, this is really nice. And it seems really fine and everybody's good. And then I walked to the gate of the other horse, which is a gray, if you see him on our website. Um, and I walked to the gate and he was at the far end of the field, just like the chestnut was. Um, and I opened, I got to the gate and I opened the gate and he looked up and I started to walk toward him and he started to walk toward me. And we met in the middle of the field and he put his head on my heart and I burst into tears. It was so clear that he was saying, no, I pick you. It's not, you know, it's not, this is kind of cool or this is kind of nice. It was so clearly that it brought an enormous amount of emotion out of me. And so he was the horse I vetted and he was the horse that I purchased. And as I started to develop that partnership, every time I turned around, he was showing me something like, like as if he could talk to me. And when he was doing all these different things that showed me what was going on, it made me start to think of other horses that I had owned or that had met me at different points in my 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 personal growth as well as my equestrian growth and i realized that each of them that there was more to what they were doing than just you know 
being a good boy or a good girl to, you know, do what I was asking them to do. Mm-hmm. And that caused me to realize the healing power of horses. And as I started to write about that and think about that and clarify that, um, it became very evident to me that I needed to figure out how to bring the healing power of horses to people who didn't have access to healing. And that um, the other piece of that is you don't really want to be on a horse when you're processing something like anxiety or trauma or fear or, um, you know, PTSD or any of the things that we help people process. We help people with fibromyalgia, chronic pain, um, anxiety, depression, um, disordered eating, like all different kinds of things. And if, if you're taking somebody into the place of those kinds of thoughts and feelings, the safest place is not on top of a horse. The safest place is on the ground with a horse. Um, And then the other thing that became very important to me in this process as a designer, um, oftentimes during the early stages of sustainable design and sustainable building practices, we needed a lot of evidence to convince a client that doing something that was good for the planet was good for their business. And so we did a lot with data collection. And the one thing that I can tell you is when I started to think that horses were doing something special, I knew it's at least in a therapeutic way. um, I was pretty fearful that people would think, oh, that's that crazy lady over there. She thinks horses are doing something, but we don't really know. And so I thought we've got to have a way of making sure that it's measurable, that we can show concrete evidence that something's happening, how can we do that? Otherwise, you know, it's not going to have legs and we're not going to be able to really develop something that's um, sustainable. So that was um, a very important early stage um, achievement was that Brown University took a, a, a professor in the Department of Public Health, took a significant interest in the work that we were doing and set up the data collection and the IRB and all of the, you know, the correct scientific ways of collecting data, making sure we're not using humans as guinea pigs and, you know, all of those things. So mm-hmm. that has meant that over since 2017, um, there has been data collected on every client that we have, de-identified data um, that shows the significance of their progress. That's fantastic to have that backing. Yes. It's been amazing. And that has led to the VA being interested in, in what we do suicide prevention. So different things have grown from that original data. So I lost a couple of words. You said the um, Veterans Association has taken interest. VA. In yeah, the Providence VA. VA, the research researchers associated with the, the VA um, have decided that they want to study what we do for suicide prevention in a veteran population, combat veteran population. That is really good news. And I, I, I know that's why, the, <laughs> yeah, there are so many people are, appreciate that. And um, can you share some of the um, statistics that are in some of the data for listeners um, 
who might want to hear, oh, what, so what is some of the data that's been collected since 2017? Just, just even if it's in, you know, just give us well, a, a couple of things that I'd like to let people know. And that is, and this, these are significant. Um, this is not necessarily our data, but it's, mm -hmm. it reflects our population. It reflects the, the U.S. population, but 70% of adults in the U.S. have experienced a traumatic event in their lifetime. And what we know about trauma or stress is that when we have a traumatic event or stress-related um, experience, it's stored in the brain separate from short and long-term memory and conscious thought. And that's important because it's stored at the age and stage you were when it first happened. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, and I like to use this example because this is, you know, when we say trauma, it sounds big and scary and like, well, I haven't had trauma or there isn't anything traumatic in my life. So why do I have anxiety or why is this affecting me? And I, I like to use this example because there are a lot of us who have experienced it. So if you think about a four or five-year-old who's going to kindergarten or first grade or preschool and you, you know, they get their pretty new dress or their, you know, new outfit and they get their new lunchbox and they're, you know, we get them their backpack to take them to school and everybody's excited. Now, is mom usually a little bit anxious? Probably. Does she let anybody know she's anxious? Probably not. Right. But kids are designed to pick up on that. And yes. they're also designed to try to figure out how to get through whatever mom says they're supposed to get through. If there's not space to say, I don't like this idea. Why do I have to go? What do you mean? Um, you're not going to be there all day long and I'm going to meet all these new people and all these new things. And you can just imagine, you know, the anxiousness building. But if it's not safe to talk about it, which for many of us, the signal we send our kids is it's going to be fun. Let's not talk about how scary it is. Right. Mm -hmm. Then mm -hmm. they process it as trauma. It gets mm -hmm. stored in the body as stress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when it gets stored in that separate part of our brain, it's only as old as they are when it first happened. And that means that anytime anything like what happened then happens again, right? So yes. I'm anxious about going to Boy Scouts. I'm anxious about going to school. I'm anxious about COVID. I'm anxious about whatever. You know, you can just 15 other things when you're that little, yes. millions of other things can feel like that thing that happened. The part of you that shows up is four or five. You only have access to the age-appropriate coping strategies you have when you're four or five. Now, you're 15, you're 25, you're in college, doesn't, you know, all of a sudden, the part of you that shows up when that social situation that feels big and scary happens is four or five, you don't have access to all of your coping strategies. You don't have access to all of your tools. You only are little. We help to build a bridge from the trauma part of your brain to the conscious part of your brain where you can actually have access to all of your coping strategies. And the data shows that it's an average of seven sessions so the actuarial tables will tell you for the insurance companies that if you have anxiety disorder and 
it's going to and you you know you see you seek help um insurance is going to count on it taking 18 months to two years talk therapy and medication and with us it's seven sessions remarkably consistently seven sessions and for us that's under three months that is remarkable and and um, i can imagine the difference that makes for families and that makes me first i want to acknowledge there was a great question but i really after that would like to go to the photos because there's um several pictures of of clients who are willing to be photographed and um and allow the these the use um, because they have so much positive reviews to say of how affected the family but there's one of the little girl um holding a sign about her daddy that's just it's so heartwarming. Um, so I wonder, um, Roxy, could you flash the question? Thank you, uh, Suzanne Jewell, saying this is amazing. Do you train others to learn these modalities? So one of the beautiful things about our process is that um, it is replicable. So our goal was to develop, my goal was to develop something that we that could spread um, throughout the country or that I could train other people to do it because only one person can only see so many people. So yes, we've been training other um, we, integrative equine therapists to do this work. Um, and we're happy, you know, there's a fee obviously associated with that. And, um, but, but you can do amazing work um, in your area. Thank you for that. Uh, Roxy, do you mind showing the, um, I guess if you can just kind of summarize each photo as it comes up. Thank you. So this is a photo of a particular client who um, was working with, that's Raja, the gray horse. Um, and during, so one of the things that the horses do is they show us what's going on inside of a person. When we sink a horse and a human, we can literally see what's going on inside of them by watching the horse. So when we, when we train integrative equine therapists, we obviously train them in our technique but then and our steps, but then we also train them to, um, to be able to listen and read the horses. So um, in that particular photo, Raja, the, the client had laid down, the client had squatted down and was um, chanting Om. So she was really in a very, she'd been three or four sessions into her treatment and she was in a really good place. And as soon as she really started to get super quiet and settled, he laid down. And I don't know how many of you know horses very well, but multiple horses in a herd will not lay down at the same time. So a very significant part of this particular photo is not just Raja in the foreground, but Panda in the background, because in the midst of this experience, he also came over and lay down. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, it was like the whole, it was a, a beautiful um, experience of common, shared, um, peaceful interaction. Beautiful. Thanks for the description. This is Wish and one of um, our veteran clients. And this was when he was first getting um, introduced to our horses. We have a very special way that we um, that people select their horse, the horse that they're going to work with while they do their 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 therapy with us. And um, 
that process in and of itself is also a 15th century technique that helps us to listen to our body, not our mind. We're a mind-body-spirit approach, and our goal is always to, um, to integrate the mind, the body, and the spirit. And oftentimes, our culture teaches us to listen to what our head thinks and not really to listen to what our body thinks, and very oftentimes to completely ignore the part of us, our soul self, um, that's that we don't really see. So it's easier to just sort of pinch off. So that is so true. Yeah. This is an experience of another one of our clients um, who had some really significant trauma as a child, very young child. Um, she's adopted and um, you can see how the horses are standing with her and Raja's actually standing wrapping her um, to just hold her. That is so sweet. Yeah, yeah. totally. It looks like the horse yeah. is taking care of her. Absolutely. And so <laughs> as the client processes what's going on, the horses will come close or farther away based on what's going on um, and show her when she gets more and more connected and integrates apart by coming closer and closer. The other thing that's happening or that, that's noteworthy about this photo, as is all of them, is that we do not use, all of our work is done at what we call at liberty. That means the horse is completely free to move and, um, and that's significant too. So we don't hold or restrain any of our horses, nor do we hold or restrain any of our clients as they're, you know, going through their process. It's a, it's a beautiful dance. This is another photo of, this is Raja again, um, with a little girl who is also a military child. Um, so secondary trauma for families of veterans is a significant experience and helping children and caregivers is part of our work. That's fantastic. This is just a photo of a visit of veterans, um, hidden heroes, which is what we call um, veteran caregivers for the Elizabeth Dole Foundation and some of our um, political leaders in our community. This was in Rhode Island at our Rhode Island Center. And, go ahead. And this is another client. Um, uh, up in, in the wintertime, we, we see clients in both locations year-round. So we right now have a center in Florida and a center in Rhode Island, and we're opening a center outside of Pencil in Pennsylvania, outside Philadelphia and Delaware, between Philadelphia and the Chesapeake, um, and outside of Boston. So yes, we're, we're, we're excited about training and opening more and more places. That's fantastic. I'm so happy you're, you made it a rep replicable. Yes. This is a young lady from California who came to do some work with us. Um, so we, we do what are called intensives for people who come from a distance. We can do seven sessions in four days or a week, depending on how much time they have. And this is an example of someone who was experiencing the wildflower, the wildfires in California mm. or experienced the wildfires after she did her work on anxiety. And mm. um, she gives us a beautiful testimonial that's available, I think, on YouTube um, about how the work that she did with us made it possible for her to survive. And then, you know, the, the 
evacuations and all that stuff in her area and not be anxious. Yeah, that is that is a very traumatic experience. Yes. Yes. Anytime, I mean, it's obvious that experiences that are life or death experiences are traumatic, right? So, yeah. And if we already have um, anxiety or um, depression or panic attacks or, you know, any kind of, any kind of something that we're already keenly aware makes it that much bigger. This is another, um, so this young lady is part of a film by Sesame Street Workshop. It's their first docu-series called Through Our Eyes. And this episode, so there are four parts. Um, the whole idea behind this docu-series was that it's about children through children's eyes and its experiences of families in America going through very difficult things. So the first in the series, I think it's the first, is um, children of parents who, who has, children who have a parent who's incarcerated. The second is children of parents um, who are homeless. Hmm. So families that are homeless, one of the largest um, difficulties that children in our culture face. Um, then the third is children of military veterans. And that was the one that we are featured in or part of um, this young lady's healing process. And then the fourth was children of, let's see, oh, I can't, there's, there are four of them. Um, I'll remember. Okay. And there's one more picture. It's a fantastic, um, I, I recommend it to everybody. It's a really powerful series. And so would you name the series again, please? Through Our Eyes. And our episode is the Homefront episode. So that's why it says okay. Through Our Eyes Homefront. It's available on HBO Max. Okay. Good to know. And that last photo... Yeah, that's just, that's our center in Rhode Island. That's up by the road. And um, we do do a lot with veterans, a lot with um, adults and children. We see people age eight to 80. So. Fantastic. I, I, uh, I'm i thinking about how on your website, you do have um, the horses introduced as staff mm. and that's so uh, not normal to give them the same status as human beings that I, when I was looking through it, I was like, oh, oh, oh there's a horse. I was like, oh, oh, the yeah. horse are the staff. Of course the horse are the staff. And Absolutely. how wonderful for them to be photographed and named and partnered. Yes. Um, so that was we, we all, as I said before, we only work with warm bloods because of the bloodlines and the way that they connect with people. Um, we also know each horse's history, life history. So we know their, their bloodline history back to the 13th or the 15th century, depending on the breed. Um, we know their life history and there's no trauma in any of their life histories. And th that's significant to us because, um, in our data collection, I don't, you know, how to, how to, how do we know it's not the horse's trauma showing up? And that question gets eliminated when we know their life story. And then the last but not least, 
We don't work with any horses. We don't ask any horse to do this work with humans that doesn't want to. So they actually, we spend quite a bit of time with them, doing work with them before they work with any clients and find out if they like it. Because just like you or me, if we didn't like what we were doing, we wouldn't do it very well or very long. You know, we just lose interest. And these horses, our sessions are 90 minutes long. Um, and they stay profoundly connected throughout the time that they're with their clients. I'm wondering, like, as, as, a, as a coach, the, um, myself as a core alignment coach and a emotional wisdom training specialist, I find, and I've done previous, like, people support work. I was mm -hmm. a crisis intervention mm -hmm. person, a trainer, and um, kind of a listener and a peer, peer counselor in a lot of different ways. Right. And this form of coaching I love because it actually gives me energy. I actually feel energized. I feel the same way. Um, throughout and after the session, just as I'm, I'm just as happy and I've had just as good an uplifted, uplifting shift as my clients have. And do you, and I see you're nodding, you feel the same way. How about Absolutely. the horses? Do you feel like the horses are energized by it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And what I would, and other people that, that I've trained and that now are doing the work have mm -hmm. said to me, I didn't understand what you were saying because they were, you know, they get a little anxious that it's going to be exhausting or it's, you know, 90 minutes is a long time to hold space. And, um, and they, and I'm trying to remember exactly the way this other person said it, but she said, I remember you saying that the horse helps, but I had no idea how much having a partner there was going to matter. Hmm. Yeah. Just part of like holding up, holding the presence, holding, um, holding space, being present for, um, supporting as people release and let go of, um, the energy that it takes for those neurons to fire down the neural pathway. I like to think of it as a super highway. So when mm -hmm. you have a, when you have a neural pathway, that's been used a lot, it's like a super highway and lots of times that's a great thing, but sometimes, um, it's the kind of thing we wish we didn't have that reaction. We mm -hmm. wish that didn't happen so fast before we could stop it. We build the exit ramp from the super highway that comes from the trauma part of our brain. And you really have to stay present with and keep people connected in that building process. So, um, yeah, and then we slow it down enough that you can get off the exit. You know, if you fly by, past the exit ramp, you can't get off. So, you know, we right. slow, we're able to just um, invite the part. We use parts language. It's a, it's a, it, it helps people to be aware that it's not all of them. It's a part of them that, that floods them um, and causes that reaction rather than a response. So we help create responses Right. Rather than reactions. Rather than reactions. And I also, I also deeply appreciate that the horses are not restrained because that of course would impact if I were restrained and I, what I, what, when I was being a support to someone, I, it would affect Absolutely. how well I could tune into myself. I'd, I'd be having to use some of my energy to force down frustration or be mm -hmm. distracted by the fact that I, I don't want to be restrained. Like I could not be, possibly be present right if i were restrained right yes and we want our horses to keep themselves safe that's what they do right if there's a predator the horse's job is to run 
And it's not just its own job to run, it's to make sure its whole herd runs, right? They horses live in community, actually the way we are designed to live in community and connection. And the beauty of the work is our horses are able to stay present because we keep them connected in their community. We're not Mm. asking, we're not asking them to be separate from, we're not asking them to be anything but them. And then from their behavior, they can show us what's going on. Is it big and scary? How big and scary is it? Is it safe? When is it safe? Have we released or let go of something? They show us. That's fantastic. I, I, I want to hear more about that in a second, but I'm thinking about the fact that you also don't separate them from other horses. I'm, I'm about to um, start a workshop this Saturday that's going to run for eight Saturdays um, called Embracing Interdependence because we are an interdependent species. We are. And um, how better everything is when we completely accept it because we all actually long for it and love it. Um, so, and horses are the same way, huh? They're interdependent species. They, yes, they only survive. I mean, they know that their survival is dependent on their connectivity. Um, and I think that's a big awakening that many people have because our culture values independence and autonomy and and things that sometimes don't feel so good. Um, and, you know, having just come through COVID as far through COVID as we are, who knows really, but... Um, but the separation and um, the isolation was yeah. really hard on people mm-hmm. because we're not supposed to feel that way. No. And separation and isolation in the midst of all kinds of messages that say it's not safe. How safe is it? We don't know. You know, it, it's it's very triggering. Mm-hmm. Yes, we've been through a lot and need all kinds of modalities for healing. I want to ask, before I um, ask you to repeat, um, you know, how people can find you and find the information and find the website. And I want to ask about, make sure I give us a minute to talk about how you help others have access to horses who otherwise would not have access to horses. First, I want to know just a share a little bit more about if a horse picks up something from a client that uh, would make the horse want to like walk away or if it was like if like say if I was releasing something like toxic like I I I hit a point if I were your client I hit a point where I could suddenly like sob or scream or cry Mm -hmm. as part of a heal as a part of the healing process um is that a situation where horses want to stay and they know what you're doing and they will hang around or are there times when they go, you know what, I'm walking away. And if that's not when they walk away, when would they walk away? What would they that's walk away question. from? So it, th- that's a very good question. Um, so first of all, the horses don't walk away, away. They just provide space. Hmm. Okay. So, and there's a big difference. So if they move a little farther away or provide space and continue eating, it's very different from if they move away and they stop eating. Mm. Okay. When a horse isn't eating, so horses are designed to eat consistently and pretty constantly. Um, That's how their digestive system works properly. But what's the first thing that happens if there's danger, 
for people. Pahea, what would you do if first um, you have panic, panic, freeze, freeze, hold your breath, right? <laughs> hold your breath, right? Mm-hmm. Look up. Would you stop doing whatever you're doing? Right. So yeah. horses do the same thing. They will not eat because they need to be ready to go. Right. Their their mm-hmm. greatest safety is in being able to flee. Right. That's their power. Um, mm-hmm. They also will hold their breath. Hmm. And both of those things, when those things happen, adrenaline and cortisol are running through their veins. They're getting ready to need to run, right? As soon as a horse knows that they don't need to run, so one horse in a herd notices something, stops eating. Before they even raise their head, every horse knows and is looking up. That's, Hmm. That's connection. And it's Mm -hmm. the most beautiful thing when you see a herd of horses prepare to run or actually start to run when you act from a, from what they think is a predator to see the wave go through the herd. It's like a visible experience of exactly Mm -hmm. the energy that we're talking about. Okay. Now that doesn't, we use, we work with horses one-on-one with a client because having a whole herd of horses around you is overwhelming. And our goal is not to have you in an overwhelmed place. Our goal is to have you in a very safe place. So one-on-one with a horse though, does not mean that every horse in the next paddock or in the next stall isn't keenly still connected, right? They can stay connected 700 yards away. They do not need to be right next to each other to stay connected. So what we read and what's important is to notice when they stop eating, when they mm. give up space. Space mm. doesn't mean I'm I'm leaving you. Space mm. means what, and that's a that's a key. That's a that's a a moment where an IET um, therapist mm-hmm. will say what you know what 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 are you aware of? And mm. almost always, something came to someone's mind. Mm. The horse gave space. We lead them Mm. through the process. The horse releases Mm. either through the breath, shaking head, chewing, licking, um, all of these different signals that let us know. Because the other thing that a horse will always Mm. do, something humans don't do so well anymore, is as soon as they're aware that it's safe, they let go. They let go of the energy that they hold on to and go back to rest. We don't do that very well. We hold, 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 hold. What, what, what? Is it happening? Is it going to happen again? How do I know if it's going to happen again? What do I do if it's going to happen again? Right? And that holding is exactly what gets us into trouble. Yes. That's what we help people to know what it feels like to actually let go again and actually go back to a relaxed state and be connected mind, body, and spirit in that relaxation so that then we know when we're in fight or flight or when a part is up. Wow. So I, I'm getting more more of a feeling for it that it's almost like they're channeling your energy. Yes. It's almost like a, like yes. a, a vehicle or a vessel yes. for energy go, goes through them. It's a beautiful and they're day. They're like, oh, that needs to be released. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yep. Okay. That's phenomenal. I, well, I, I'm realizing we have one or possibly two videos and in, in, in just six minutes left. So, mm-hmm. um, 
so I'll ask you the question about access and to, uh, repeat the information afterwards if, if um, Roxy is um, ready to show a video and let us know if we have one or two. That's um, be great to see some action. Oh, great. Thank you. Wow, that was so cute. I feel like if I heard correctly, the little girl was saying, right after the little girl talked about something being scary, the horse walked over and, and nosed, nosed her, like put her nose gently on yeah. the girl's face. Horse, yep, the horses will always show us where we hold. That's well, amazing. literally, I, I, if I could, we don't have data, collected data on this, but I will tell you, 99% of the time, I don't want to say 100 because there might be one that I'm not thinking of, but, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the horse will touch somebody someplace and I will ask the question, where is the part holding after? Mm -hmm. And they'll yes. say, right there. <laughs> and wow. so the horse will show us, yep, you got to let go right there. Take a deep breath. Let's move. Let's let it move. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm realizing we have like a little bit less than four minutes and I know the listeners on the radio can't see this, but you can check it out later on on YouTube on, on talk for TV on YouTube. If you want to see the visuals. So do we have time for the second video and then another minute to wrap up? Yes. Okay. Let's do the second video. Thank you, Roxy. Wrap 
the part that holds the fear of your tummy, just wrap it in love. Higher self, soul self. Just feeling what it feels like to be connected. Knowing that it floods you, right? Yeah. That overwhelming sense was the flooding. Then just turn towards. Just breathing and noticing. you feel towards an eight-year-old that's that scared? Wow. <laughs> I, I, I just keep wanting to interpret like, it's interesting because the horse by the end was like the body was touching the person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was space, and then was like, and like just stopped to eat, eating, like to check out. Okay, what's going on? And then just went back to eating. Fascinating, but I know we have only one minute left. Oh my gosh, um, this is so rich. And um, can you say we'll say the website again and the email? But the fact that I know the, that some of the sessions are free, and and you uh, and the um, Whitney Bailey. Uh, the head of the the board want to make sure people, uh, combat veterans and families have access. Can you say something about that? Yes, combat veterans and their families um, have access, free access to our work, as do what we call community clients. So folks who cannot afford services. First of all, insurance doesn't cover what we do. Um, just it's not that progressive yet. So, or insurance isn't that progressive yet. Um, mm -hmm. Even though our rates of healing are far faster than so many other things. Um, but so folks who we have a list of community, we, we have what we call community clients. And those are folks who a doctor, a nurse practitioner, a mental health professional, or a, a, um, a community like a rabbi or a um, a minister can vouch for someone and say, yes, they can't afford to pay. And then, you know, as we're able, we fit everybody in. Um, obviously we have to do that on a percentage basis. We've got to see clients who can pay to help pay the bills. So um, yeah, but we, our goal is to always give people the opportunity to heal um, the fastest okay. way possible. And the, the email address is info at Beachwood beach like b-e-a-c-h wood and then ri.org ri as in rhode island yes and um and the website is the same www.beachwoodri.org um and this is the reverend lynn 
who I'm sorry, I didn't acknowledge your, That's your okay. master's in divinity and your, uh, you've done a lot of spiritual work and have, um, and or you are an ordained minister. I apologize. I didn't acknowledge that before. That's okay. So I, we're out of time. Thank you so much. Thank you listeners. Thank you, Roxy, our sound engineer. Thank you, Reverend Lynn, Brian Phipps. Thank you and, for having me. Uh, my pleasure. And thank you listeners and viewers and be sure to tune in next Wednesday at 8 p.m. at Talk4TV or uh, W4CYRadio.com. And may we all have enriching conversations in diversity this week. Yes. And thank you for the wonderful work that you do, Bahia. Thank you. Audio Jungle. Welcome to another 21 Hats Dashboard. I'm Lauren Feldman, and I'm here with John Ahrensmeyer, who is founder and CEO of Small Business Majority, an advocacy group for businesses and entrepreneurs. Welcome back, John. Good to be here, Lauren. Great to have you. Um, you're in D.C. You're following what's going on. There's been a lot going on. Let's dive right into the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, your organization has been supporting it. Uh, why? Sure. Well, there's a, there's a lot in here that's good for uh, for small business. Uh, I'm going to focus particularly on the healthcare provisions. Um, uh, majority of uh, participants in the uh, marketplaces and the exchanges are small business owners, employees, and self-employed people, and uh, we're very thrilled to see that the premium subsidies are going to remain in place for at least another two years. Uh, that takes um, off the table some pretty serious um, increases in healthcare that might have happened, um, and also. Also, um, you know, we've been advocating to reduce prescription drug prices for years, and they've finally taken the first step uh, in the bill by uh, allowing for um, the government to uh, to negotiate um, Medicaid, Medicare prices with, uh, with drug companies. So that's huge. So those things kind of help small businesses by kind of indirectly by helping their uh, employees primarily, correct? Right. Got it. And then how about the go ahead? No, go on. Well, I mean, you know, the people are talking about the tax provisions. And um, again, you know, we have a very unequal tax code where big businesses really are able to uh, legally avoid lots of taxes. And the fact that there's going to be a requirement that businesses uh, over, with over a billion dollars in profits pay uh, taxes um, on uh, at least 50 percent uh, in taxes on their book income is a way of sort of leveling the playing field uh, and bringing more revenue in and certainly 
certainly not an expense of small business. And then there's, of course, the, the increased tax enforcement, uh, which is really going to be targeted to large businesses and very wealthy. Uh, even the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, has said that not going to use any of that uh, to target um, businesses, uh, uh, people with uh, incomes under $400,000, which is 97% of, of the business ownership out there. And then there's a, and then I'm sorry, then there's the clean energy, um, which, you know, it, it, small businesses are a huge part of a sustainable clean energy economy moving forward and substantial um, investment and, and tax um, considerations to promote a clean energy economy um, is going to really enable, uh, is really going to boost small business, domestic small businesses who play a big role in, in our uh, clean energy economy going forward, and not to mention the environmental benefits. What are you referring to? Is that, uh, you know, it targets electric vehicles, it targets, uh, you know, f fuel pumps and things like that. You're talking about small businesses that are part of the supply chain to create those products? Yeah, the electric vehicle tax credit, investments in uh, clean energy uh, manufacturing. There are small businesses up and down the line in the supply chain in, in all of our um, clean energy industries. So this is going to benefit them. The bill does have a lot of critics. Um, no Republicans voted for it. Uh, one of the things I saw was Senator Grassley on Twitter saying, warning that IRS agents with AR-15s are going to be coming and knocking on the doors of business owners. Um, so should I guess he was referring to the fact that there are going to be 80,000 more employees at the IRS uh, to help the IRS do a better job of going after tax cheats. Is there any reason why business owners should be concerned about that? Well, the, the IRS is, is significantly underfunded and a lot of taxes aren't being collected. And the majority of those taxes are, um, you know, corporate taxes or, um, you know, taxes uh, on the very wealthy. And these aren't necessarily people or corporations that are overt criminals. Um, they may be pushing the envelope and it's going to require an additional workforce of IRS agents to take a look and see, is this, is this proper or is it not? I mean, I'm not going to respond to the AR-15 comment. I mean, this is and uh, you know we're in a we're in a pretty pretty intense uh, polarized political environment now, so I'll, I'll let that one stand. Uh, I hear you. I th you know I think to try to make sense of what he was saying, the the best face you could put on that argument is that if there's increased enforcement, there may be businesses that are forced more businesses will be forced to go through um, an audit, and that can be a painful process, even if you're not doing anything wrong. Um, is that a concern? I mean, nobody likes to go through an audit, but it's hard to argue that um, businesses should be concerned if there's going to be enforcement of tax laws and, and that they need to be looked at. Um, I do not see anything in this legislation or anything that um, Secretary Yellen or anyone else has said that indicates this is going to be targeting very small businesses. It's absolutely not going to be targeting the 97 percent of business owners that have income under $400,000, 500000 for um, married filing jointly. So, um, it's not it's not a significant concern for the vast majority of small businesses. And it's, you know, the IRS is, is, is woefully understaffed. There's been all sorts of studies showing that, um, you know, billions of dollars aren't being collected. And as I said, it's not just overt criminals. These are these are people attempting to do things, perhaps, and, and they need to be looked at.
How about the uh, electric vehicle stuff? There's been some criticism there suggesting that this is not going to have the immediate impact it might because it forces uh, the manufacturers of electric vehicles to change their supply chains and make more stuff in America as opposed to overseas. Is that a, a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I think a lot of what is in the uh, in the in the clean energy portion of this uh, legislation um, is the, the benefits will be over time. We're not going to see immediate benefits this year. That's absolutely correct. Um, but um, I do think that over time, uh, look, the car companies in, in this case are already trending in this direction, and this gives them a boost. This gives them this gives them a signal that hey, you already have started to move your manufacturing much more towards sustainable and ultimately electric vehicles and we're 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 gonna we're telling you that's the way to go and there are gonna be tax benefits um to doing that and there's gonna be invest increased investment in in those industries. So yeah we're gonna see a, a trend over time and um to the extent that we get more of, of this work done more of this manufacturing in the United States that's gonna benefit a greater number of of, of US uh, businesses of all sizes. It's been called the Inflation Reduction Act. Do you think it will reduce inflation? I think we'll see uh, an impact over time. Uh, I, as I said, I, I don't want people to expect we're going to this, this legislation alone is going to cause inflation to to drop. Inflation is a function of a lot of different um, issues, really mostly related to um, uh, dislocations coming off of the pandemic. Um, so, um, but I do think over time it will it will help to stabilize our economy. A large uh, part of what's going on with inflation is just a lot of uncertainty. Um, people not having the right amount of inventory, uh, not being prepared for uh, to have enough people working. Uh, you know, the whole system got thrown out of whack by by the pandemic. So um, this this will help to settle things down. But in and of itself, it's not going to cause inflation to plummet overnight. Um, my sense of the small business majority, and I've been to some of your events, is that you you represent a very broad swath, a very diverse group of business owners. Did you get any pushback from Republican members of your organization um, who did not think you should be supporting this? Uh, very little. Um, we uh, we were able to secure a sign on of two hundred and sixty small businesses in a matter of two days to sign on to this. And, and we had a few interesting comments that came back in that process, I have to say. Um, but uh, it was it was it was very, very small number. Um, we obviously welcome welcome opinions from all sides and we're always prepared to learn and listen to people's concerns. Our sense was that um, the opinions were, you know, being driven by some of the, the partisanship that's, that's infusing everything. Um, and uh, but yeah, sure, I mean, there's nothing's ever 100 percent. But uh, by, by and large, our businesses in our network tend to be smaller, tend to be more skewed toward business owners of color and women in under-resourced areas. Um, they're very, uh, very pleased about this. As you said, you know, very few things are <laughs> get it right 100 um, percent. Are there any criticisms that you've heard that rang true to you that, that did give you concern? Is there anything that you would like to be different? 
there really wasn't any concern about the uh, about the legislation itself. I mean, uh, to your point earlier, I'm sure there are some businesses that may be concerned about increased IRS enforcement. Um, we didn't hear a lot of that, but that would be a reasonable thing to be concerned about. Quite frankly, and I really don't want to focus on what's not in here, but, um, you know, there's a lot more that we can do and hopefully we'll be able to do in terms of child care and paid family leave. And we're hearing a lot of support for that. So, again, I don't want to focus on what's not in here because um, this there's a lot in here that's really good. But I would say the biggest um, comments that are, I wouldn't call them negative, but are just like, hey, you know, we can do better um, are along those lines and not so much uh, criticizing what's in here. So let's move on to a couple of other topics. Um, this is such an unusual economic time. Neither you nor I is an economist, but uh, I'm curious what you're hearing from your organization. You know, we're at this moment where there's been a lot of talk about recession looming, and there, there certainly are red flags out there. We also have this incredibly, you know, dr- dramatic growth in jobs, um, more than half a million in July. I guess the first question I ask is, do you think the labor shortage is ending over, still going on? Yeah, look, let me first of all say there's, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And quite frankly, we just came out of the field with a survey. We're going to be releasing um, the results, which showed uh, actually a, a decrease in optimism um, from um, from. Uh, six months ago. Um, and there's definitely concern about inflation, concern about a possible recession. To your point, workforce is, is a huge component of this. Uh, it is um, the frustration across so many industries uh, and not having being able to access a workforce uh, that is needed right now. That That is a big, that is a big, big concern. And is there, are, are they calling for something to be done about it? Is there a sense that something should happen? Well, I think there are a number of things that um, that we can do. I think that um, I think that I mentioned um, childcare, for example. Uh, we're hearing a lot on the issue of childcare, and the lack of affordable childcare is really impeding the ability of many caregivers, mostly women, to get back into the workforce. And on top of that, most of the childcare providers are small businesses almost all run uh, by women and many run by uh, women of color and immigrants. So um, child care, we're hearing a lot. Uh, and that, if, we, if we could get to the heart of that, I think we could really um, solve things. Obviously, uh, the healthcare stuff we talked about is going to be helpful. Um, we'd love to see uh, more attention being paid to paid leave. So I think things that are necessary to, 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 to bolster um, a workforce are essential. But there are a couple other things we can be doing here. Um, it's absolutely crazy that um, we have a more restrictive immigration system when immigrants uh, provide uh, huge amounts of the workforce in a lot of industries, hospitality, construction. Um, and we're hearing in those industries just tremendous lack of, of, of support. And the, the last thing we should be doing is, is restricting immigration. Obviously, we need to, um, to have a secure border. But, um, you know, we, we really created a situation where there are far fewer immigrants available for many of these jobs than there were. The other thing we can be doing is boosting um, justice-impacted second-chance hiring. Um, there are large numbers of, of, of people out there who are looking for uh, second-chance uh, jobs. It's something we're going to be getting more and more involved in, and it's just sitting there. Um, so those are two those are two things we can be doing immediately to boost the um, to boost the uh, um, to boost our workforce. 
As far as immigration, would it take a comprehensive agreement on immigration to, to solve that problem? Or do you think there's smaller steps that might happen more quickly than, than that? Well, look, a comprehensive agreement is obviously would be the best. Uh, and, um, you know, it's really unfortunate that we actually had a bipartisan uh, legislation in the Senate, what was it, six, seven years ago, that never got a hearing in the House. Um, and at, at one point in time, this really was a bipartisan issue. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce supports uh, a more ex expanded um, immigration. Um, but that said, uh, the one thing I didn't mention before is DACA, uh, the uh, the Dreamers. Uh, these are people who are essentially American. They've been in this country almost their entire lives. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, having restrictions on their ability and, and creating uncertainty in their lives is not is not helpful to boosting entrepreneurship, boosting the workforce of the future. Um, there are um, there are definitely things we can do um, uh, with our border policy to um, to ensure that we don't have, um, you know, people coming in who are, are going to, you know, who may be criminals or maybe maybe will uh, disrupt things. But at the same time, you know, that's led to reductions in legal immigration. That's led to um, reductions in the H1B program, H2B program. So um, there are a lot of things we can be doing um, short of, of a comprehensive solution. Obviously, a comprehensive solution is what we really should be shooting for in the long run. I also wanted to ask you about uh, another piece of legislation that has kind of been overshadowed by the Inflation Reduction Act. But uh, we've also recently passed uh, the the Chips Act, which uh, encourages the manufacture of computer chips in this country. Does that have uh, a potential impact for small businesses? Well, I, th I think what we saw up and down the line were the you know, the breakdowns in the supply chain, and a lot of that did have to do with um, with dependence on on foreign sources. Um, you know, we're you know we think uh, that that uh, free trade is a is a great thing, but I think we learned in the pandemic that if you uh, allow yourself to um, depend too heavily on other countries for key. Uh, key um, uh, supplies, such as chips, in this case, um, you're putting yourself uh, behind the eight ball. So yes, that is that is huge, uh, and uh, the ability to to bolster a domestic uh, manufacturing base of chips is 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 going to be essential. Uh, obviously, uh, the industry itself will uh, you know will employ more Americans and will allow more um, small businesses in the supply chain to participate, but also um, industries like the auto industry that has been really hampered not having. The, the right kind of chips, uh, and then 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 that's, that's had a ripple effect on all the suppliers in the um, in the auto industry. Uh, yes, so that that is huge. Um, it's obviously a national security concern, but it's definitely uh, a domestic economic concern that is going to have a, a big benefit for small, for small businesses. John, we've covered a lot of ground here. Is there anything else you'd like to see happening at this point that would be useful to? Two quick things. We haven't touched on capital, and there continues to be a need to, as we come down from all of the pandemic programs, um, there needs to be a continued focus on ensuring that not only capital, but technical assistance um, gets to the most under-resourced businesses to provide them with um, with capital, uh, kind of get beyond some of the uh, traditional restrictions on capital capital. 
um, that have um, left a lot of them on the side and to give them more access to education and technical assistance. We're very excited about the um, uh, State Small Business um, Credit Initiative, the SSPCI, um, that is going to enable states to get $10 billion out to um, mostly under-resourced uh, small businesses. Um, and uh, a half a billion of that is directly tied to providing technical assistance. So we're very excited about that. The other thing I just want to mention briefly is there's been a real uptick in a focus, as you know, on antitrust and fair competition, uh, which is actually, again, a bipartisan issue. Um, and um, small businesses have been, you know, there's been antitrust has been some people haven't focused on it very much at all in the last 40 years. And small businesses are bearing the brunt of sort of in unequal relationships with large businesses, not just tech, although that's a big part of it, but in franchise relationships, in uh, other contractual relationships and across the board. And we're very pleased to see that there's an uptick in uh, in um, concern about this. And uh, we think small businesses need to be at the table um, making the case for why we need to enforce some of these laws uh, and maybe pass some new laws to deal with that. Is that what it's, what it's going to take? Do you think um, legislation is required or are you referring to litigation? What's What's going to move the needle? All of the above. We know there's, there's pending legislation. I know it's gotten some play. The, um, uh, the Klobuchar-Grassley bill on self-preferencing uh, in the tech industry. Um, but also, this is like the Robinson-Patman Act that's been on the books for decades um, that uh, really needs to be enforced by the FTC and, and the Justice Department on uh, price discrimination. Um, and then and then there's an opportunity, yeah, for additional private private action. So, um, and, and the states are, by the way, taking action in this. And New York has is 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 uh, trying to get a, a fairly substantial antitrust law passed. So um, you know, I, we, small businesses really gets harmed by these unequal economic relationships. And to answer your question, it's really across the board: new legislation, enforcement of existing legislation, and um, a little more opportunity for private rights of action. Going back to your concern about getting capital to to small businesses, do you think the state small business credit initiative will be sufficient or are you looking for other types of action there to, to help smaller businesses? Well, I think it's a really good start, um, you know, and, and it's also um, it's also uh, going to set a tone for perhaps states on their own, or even for the federal government to, to follow up with, with similar programs. Um, it, you know, it, it, it's an opportunity to get the capital process through uh, organizations like um, CDFI's um, community development finance institutions um, to to uh, give a real boost to technical assistance providers um, in uh, in the states who are. We're helping uh, under-resourced businesses, and um, I think we think it's a model for uh, how we can go to get capital to businesses that have traditionally been been undercapitalized. Although um, it, it does make it a little bit more complicated because it's not like you a business just goes to the SBA to learn more about it. The, the, the funds are distributed state by state, if I'm not mistaken, which means you have to look for organizations in your own uh, in your own state. It makes it a little bit more complicated for businesses to figure out where to turn. Do you have any advice on that? 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. And and we're, we're, we're spending a lot of time um, reaching out in the states, you know, to, to educate small businesses about where to go and working with uh, our partners in the states to do that. Um, so, um, yeah, you're absolutely you're absolutely correct. But, uh, you know, this this program existed under the Obama administration and it uh, was very successful. Uh, it was set up coming out of out of the um, out of the, uh, the, the Great Recession and um, the states really stepped up. And this is just the states, it's the tribal tribal entities as well stepped up. I think there's 56 different entities that, that are playing a role in this. It's also uh, revitalized the Minority Business Development Agency under the Department of Commerce. Um, and so it, what it's doing is it's, it's activating a lot of different um, uh, groups out there nationally and, and, and in the states to, um, to take a more um, affirmative role. Uh, so um, we think it's a model. And no, it's not everything. Uh, we have a long way to go. Um, but uh, this is this is a big step forward. You're right. It did exist before. What changed is it got a, the big infusion of funding, which happened uh, a year ago, I guess, with the or more than a year ago now, maybe a year and a half with the pandemic uh, legislation. Um, it, it's taken a long time for that money to get distributed. Is there a problem with that, or do you do you know if the money's flowing? The money is flowing. Um, it is it is slow and a little slower, perhaps, than we would have ideally liked. But it is it is flowing. Um, you know, it, it wasn't all going to be um, uh, distributed immediately. Out of the, for the ten billion, there are three different tranches um, and over a course of, of the next two years. So uh, uh, you know, and then the the um, Treasury Department has taken time looking at all the applications from the states and the tribal entities, um, and is is moving is moving um, you know fairly expeditiously. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so um, it, it is underway and, um, you know, we'd, we'd always love to see stuff happen faster than it does, but they've been doing a pretty good job um, getting this done and, and, and taking care of things. All right. That's a great overview. John Ahrensmeyer is founder and CEO of Small Business Majority and our man in Washington. Uh, John, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Lauren. Great, uh, great to chat with you. I appreciate it. Have a great week, everybody. All right, so welcome into the live stream today. We're going to be talking about XRP in a way that also looks at institutional adoption. Now, there's a bit of an angle here that I think you guys should be aware of, both good and also at the same time. Always keep your eyes open. We'll dive in deep. My name is Paul Barron. Welcome back into TechPath. XRP making moves throughout the week. We've seen a little bit of interest in the Celsius deal. Obviously, we've got action within the case itself causing a little bit of uh, kerfuffle, so to speak, around just the release of Hinman's emails. We'll talk a little bit about that. Also, toward the end of the show today, I'll get you guys into sentiment on XRP, which you might be surprised a little bit about that. Make sure and hit like right now and uh, give us your heads up on it. We always love to get your feedback on these kind of videos. And of course, before we get started, I do want to thank our sponsor, and that is iTrust Capital. If you guys are looking at long-term crypto investments and you're thinking in the essence of, hey, I'm going to hold my Bitcoin, I'm going to hold my digital assets for a long time, and I'm looking at more of a long-term play on this, 
I trust capital is a place to check out. Definitely the number one spot, I think, in terms of investing uh, your crypto in an IRA. It's easy to get started, uh, super simple. They've lowered the fees in which you have to get going on. And of course, that's always um, a great aspect of an IRA is low fees. And then also just in the trading fees themselves, only 1%. So excellent stuff. Remember also, they really go kind of over the top in terms of trying to protect your assets. Uh, and this is something that I think in terms of secure storage, uh, their regulated custodian uh, that they utilize. I think that those are some of the bigger benefits that we always look for. Make sure and click the link below. If you have any questions, you can get a $100 funding reward just by signing up and getting involved. Now let's talk about the XRP report that came out. And I want to kind of showcase just the what they are looking at. So Ripple did this report and the uh, focus of it was interesting. So it's crypto trends in business. Now, when you look at how businesses are going to essentially adopt, the first thing that happens when businesses start to adopt is you have the you know circular entities around them, which is the banks and of course institutions, and that is a big factor in which the in which they're really kind of focusing in on this report. I want to jump to a couple of charts in here just to kind of get into a layer. So one of the things, of course, in terms of big adoption right now is NFT genre interest. And the areas to me to pay attention to in this particular report, music, 55%. Uh, and then if you look, of course, at gaming, sports, arts, TV, obviously brand related, it is still is at 26% in terms of interest around NFTs. And the reason this is important, especially from both physical and digital experiences, which they talk a little bit about in the report itself, this starts to bring in the normies. It starts to bring in companies that are looking for just additional ways in which they can implement crypto strategies and, of course, blockchain, obviously being through NFT generation. So there's a lot of opportunity there uh, that they really kind of focus on. Uh, other aspects that I think, and I won't go too far into this, is the CBDC side of things, and this is central bank digital currency. Uh, there's a lot going on out there in terms of uh, the monetary policy, what this is going to look like from a CBDC standpoint. I will kind of pull back a, min a minute from here because this is an important focus of why this report was done. And I, I'm, of course, an XRP fan. I hold XRP. And it is one of those projects that, and when I look at Ripple, just in what they've been able to do in terms of the global financial system, Ripple wins big if adoption through institutions is done. If banks start to implement custody and we start to see movement in the space, Ripple wins big. So there is a little bit, you know, take that with a grain of salt. There is a little bit of initiative here because uh, I always follow the, follow the money and uh, it usually gets you in there. Uh, this was interesting too. Uh, imp expected impact of CBDCs. And, and this is interesting because of the fact that they're looking at business in general, the impact on business in general, finance, and then society. And even though society had a large percentage of massive impact, 36%, business and finance were still at 28 and 34%. So to me, that still shows the potential. Now you get into enterprise, that's a little different scenario. That's where blockchain will be utilized in other ways other than through finance. Uh, so I do think this is going to be uh, a big, big play. And again, it gets back to the whole point of is institutional adoption actually further on than we've maybe even knew? 
And if you refer back to a video we did this week, it was an interview with Matako. And Seamus um, from Matako got into some details, one about their deal with Citibank. Basically, Matako essentially is an initiative similar to that of BlackRock and Coinbase, all right? So they're utilizing the aspect of custody and the security aspect of where big institutions will start to implement on the blockchain and also into the crypto assets themselves, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and so on. But he mentioned something that was very interesting to me, and that is the scenario of banks that are further into the development of accepting and holding crypto assets than I think a lot of people are anticipating. So pretty cool. Uh, and it kind of aligns up with uh, overall consumer attitudes toward crypto. This is in the report itself. Uh, and you look at some of the things would only buy sustainable cryptocurrency. So I think we'll continue to see ESG, uh, environmental sustainable governance as a big part of that. Uh, let me zoom in on that a little bit for you guys. Whoa, not too much. Uh, it gets a little hard on this PDF, but I'll kind of scan around there. But you can kind of see buying sustainable cryptocurrencies, uh, prefer to buy sustainable, and then would prefer to buy sustainable cryptocurrencies. Still the top. I mean, it's over 50%. So a still big part of this, and this is one of the reasons that we see more and more tokens going into this uh, strategy. And of course, Ethereum's most recent uh, venture, obviously, into E2 and the merge, that will have a lot to do with it as well. Some other things that they had within this, and this is cool too. So this is giving more people access to financial services. This is benefits of using crypto for your organization, giving more people a better deal when using financial services. I think fees are going to be a big factor of why banks could maybe can create a whole new financial center around uh, where the fees are coming. And then uh, competitive advantage, this will be a big factor, I think, just in general of businesses that will be going. And as I said earlier, when you have all of these kinds of you know, indications, then it really does push into the face of, well, all right, if that's happening within general business and enterprise, what is the next key thing that has to occur? You get the scenarios like what you had with uh, BlackRock and Coinbase, which starts to push the hand of many of the banks out there within the market itself. Now, I want to get into a couple of things around uh, pain points. This is related to borrowing, because again, back to institutional finance, borrowing will be a key factor on how and with the use of cryptocurrencies in general and blockchain will become a big, big issue. So key enterprise pain points related to borrowing. Uh, time to apply and be approved. So obviously the reg regulatory um, landscape will be a big deal. High interest rate that's obviously charged and then uh, being rejected. Those are some of the things that are and would be a scenario where blockchain could really start to affect a lot of this. And the fact that everything in terms of, of collateral is going to easily be sourced and, and accessible through banks and institutions to secure loans, things of that nature, which it just makes the system easier when people are out there doing things like raising capital, you know, doing big loans, et cetera. And of course, they're doing this through typical banks. Here's some enterprise pain points related to raising capital. Uh, complexity, which is a problem. And then cost of raising capital, uh, resources required to raise capital. If you get into something which they're talking about, which is tokenizing assets, which eventually, and there's many people that talk about this, Raul Powell, etc. that really talk about the institutional grade of tokenizing assets 
in the future and what that might look like. And the potential for it is real. There is an absolute huge opportunity around all sorts of asset classes that eventually will make their way into tokenization. I think it's just going to be a matter of time before we really start to see this start to play out. So here's some of the key benefits that they report on of uh, using blockchain and crypto for payments. And again, right there, the big one, of course, is increased data security, uh, data quality, opportunity to expand more uh, in more markets, obviously becoming a global thing. This is where XRP really plays into it. And again, why they did the report is really showcasing the strength of what XRP and Ripple mean to the global ecosystem in terms of finance. Real-time settlement, another big factor. Opportunity to grow market share in the current markets. This will be a big, big deal with the banks that move early. And who better to partner with the right banks at the right time being XRP. So there was a lot in this report. I do recommend that you guys take a look at it. Some of the other things that I thought that they hit on is reducing fraud, 24-7, 365 markets, uh, opportunity to obviously build your brand in this new era of finance. And then, you know, the other big one, which I think is, is cool, and that's fewer payment failures, which will be a big factor uh, down the road, I think, with the benefit of what Ripple brings to the, to the plate for the global financial uh, ecosystem in terms of moving big money. I think it's just a matter of time, too, that we'll start to see Ripple moving into the retail sector. And this was kind of a, a thing that happened this week with their interest in uh, just what was happening with Celsius and the bankruptcy dealings. There could be an opportunity for them to scoop up, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands of depositors and at least that customer base and be able to go in and maybe salvage and also create kind of a, you know, a hero position uh, in the market. And remember, there's still a lot of XRP held inside Celsius. So that's a big one as well. Uh, but here's the article. It kind of breaks down the report, which talks about 76% of financial institutions expect to use crypto by 2025. This is a big, big number in a very, very short period of time. If you think about this right now, the likelihood, and it, here we are, 2020, almost 23, in two years, we're going to be on the cusp as almost every bank that you, your family, or your friends utilize today are going to be in, in, in cryptocurrency in some way or another. So huge aspect in terms of growth and the opportunity of what this might look like for sure. Use of crypto also as a payment uh, is, is probably the most important factor. Uh, this is going to be coming from things like we just talked about earlier today. Lightning, Bitcoin, and the use case of Layer 2s on Ethereum. All of that, I think, is going to play into the future of where payments are really growing. 50% of respondents in this particular uh, scenario, in this research, uh, use it as a hedge against inflation, uh, a currency for making payments. And if you're like us, this is a big part of how we do business even here at the network. You know, We utilize Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, USDC, and stablecoins all the time. It's a daily activity. Uh, and I think we're going to see more and more of this uh, for sure. Interest in buying crypto from your bank. Look at that. 65% of people at, at yes. Um, and I think just a very small percentage of people that just weren't really there yet. And I think that is just a matter of time before we start to see this uh, for sure. It, this is, I think, in a position right now, just the benefits and the ratio in which we're going to see the adoption and the potential for Ripple 
to be at the center stage around all of this is a real big opportunity. And I think it's going to be one that um, really kind of sets it into the next level. All right, so just to think about this, and you think on the global level of where this is going, banks are going to start incentivizing. If banks start incentivizing at scale, what is the kind of crypto incentives that they might offer? So here's a tweet right here from Watcher Guru. This is a Japanese bank that has launched a Bitcoin and XRP rewards program for customers. If you look at the story, what they're essentially doing, I'm going to highlight a couple of things here. So uh, new and existing customers can earn up to 8,000 Japanese yen, that's 60 bucks worth of XRP or Bitcoin, just for essentially signing up. So you've got a bank here now that is in a position where they're paying people in cryptocurrencies to essentially sign up. At some point, the next component will be, let us hold your cryptocurrencies. This is just a matter of time before I think we see massive global reaction to this, really across, I think, most of the leading countries, especially in the G20s, uh, in terms of use case, for sure. Make sure and get your questions in over on the side and smash the like button. We'd love to get your feedback on this. If you are an XRP holder, I'd love to hear your thoughts on where you think the case is right now. Do you think that this is close to a settlement? There's some things happening I'll talk about. Or do you think we're still a bit out before we start to see something happening within the XRP case? Here's John Deaton talking a little bit as well. Somebody better tell the, the SEC uh, director that a bank in Japan is now, is now transferring illegal securities. Legal. Under oath that the SEC doesn't engage in selective enforcement, even though he does. Uh, so it's, it, it's the absurd argument for XRP and the whole scenario around Ripple. And of course, John Deaton, kind of one of the, uh, I think the, the torchbearers out there in terms of really kind of showcasing just how idiotic, you know, these kind of scenarios really are in. And if you look at just the situation with Judge Netburn and, and the, a lot of the decisions that have been made, one, two of the things, I guess, over the next few months, whether it's next weeks or months, the key aspect right now is Hinman's emails, turning the, those. If you don't know much about the, the SEC case against XRP, watch a few of our videos. If you, Maybe you're brand new to crypto and you're trying to learn about XRP and what Ripple is doing. Watch a few of our, our videos. We really kind of go into a drill down, go into some of the interviews that we had with John Deaton uh, because he really breaks down some of the case uh, fallacies that the SEC has presented over the months. And they're really kind of down to their last uh, position. And this is really one of the judgments outside of summary judgment that would essentially settle the case. And that is once that these emails come over, if they come over, uh, John has a lot to say about that. It would pretty much change the face of how all of this will look for XRP. So big stuff out there. Here's another thing that when you look at, um, actually, I want to jump into, yeah, I think it's in there. Yeah, so here's another thing I want to jump into, and that is Coinbase CFO saying crypto staking uh, for institutional investors could be a phenomenon in the future. So opportunity here, again, of institutional groups really kind of accelerating into the space right here. Further in the article says, Previously, the way that institutions could have access to staking is via Coinbase Cloud, uh, so they could now use the service to run their own node, but offering uh, it as a delegated staking service similar to what we have for retail customers uh, because they just uh, onboarded 
uh, institutional clients. That's going to be interesting because if it if it gets to that level, it gets back into the whole point of large scale institutions starting to do things around liquid staking and others. And that to me is huge because it does offer up the whole aspect of how institutional finance moves in. Who's one of the biggest players in institutional finance? XRP, Ripple. So when you stake ETH2, you're locking up your assets. Right now we know about all this with uh, Coinbase until the merge. Then some period after for some institutions, that liquidity lockup is not uh, palatable. So maybe they're going to be interested in staking and they'll, they'll basically want to do it on a liquid asset. So I think there's, there's going to be some examples of how creativity is going to be utilized in these institutions of how to still handle staking but not be able to be exposed like what we've seen over the past few months with things like Voyager and Celsius around ETH and staked ETH. Further in here, Crypto Winner brings a lot of opportunity. This is something that I think is a lot of people looking at, especially around XRP. Is it the time to be looking at XRP acquisition? I'll show you some sentiment data because XRP has been somewhat a repressed coin and token for quite some time, obviously because of the SEC position. But there's, I think this is a good position for a lot of people looking at where the opportunity really uh, resides in terms of where this crypto winner may take a lot of assets. Wisdom Tree, which offers a range of ETFs and, EF and ETPs. Uh, these, are, these are indexes and model portfolios that end in the second quarter with a $74 billion assets under management. Again, this gets back to the point, big money in the place in terms of ETFs coming down the pipeline. Uh, some companies are struggling with obviously the realities of regulation risk management, and so on. Uh, that, I think, is probably going to change during this crypto winter, which, again, is going to put a lot of companies, including companies like Ripple and others, into a good position for really doing a lot of good in these uh, crypto winter uh, opportunities. So good stuff out there. Uh, what Wisdom Tree is saying is they expect to see revenues from its digital assets initiative beginning in 2023. That's six months away. And they didn't really talk about the projections, which means they were, they're probably big. And the end goal is to deliver financial services to customers faster and cheaper. Again, back to the point of breakneck speed in terms of adoption by institutions, always a good sign. But at the same time, as you've heard me talk about, there's always some risk there because this is where you're starting to swim in the pool with sharks. So it is a factor that you guys got to pay attention to. Here was John talking about uh, Hinman's email, and this is a pretty straightforward tweet, and I think it does hit on the home front, and that is that they'll never see the light of day. This was uh, from several uh, weeks ago uh, that the SEC may settle with Ripper, Ripple rather than surrendering these documents. Now the court has put it out. This is a requirement by the court to send, settle on uh, delivering these documents. So does that mean we're nearing a potential settlement if the court, in fact, has said, listen, next thing is summary judgment, get these documents out there, or we're going to rule in this case. And if this is a scenario where they just absolutely do not want to deliver on these documents because of the implications this might mean for a lot of other assets, digital assets in the space, this may be one of those positions right now where we do see some movement in the case itself. Make sure and get some questions in over on the side. I know we have a poll coming up, so let's take a look at where we are on this poll. All right. Could 76% of the worldwide financial institutions adopt cryptocurrency uh, by 2025? No too soon, and most of you are on the bus. 
big money will rush in. And, and I think, you know, when you look at the assets around this, because this is something that we will see regulatory guidance on. Overall, it's already going to most likely use the Ripple case as it's, you know, kind of the bellwether toward how the SEC will respond, including the CFTC, and how that all starts to shake out. Because this is a very critical time, both for regulators, for the regulation entities, and then for a lot of the projects that are eventually going to have to do disclosures and either be set up as a security or make their way over into the commodity bundle. That's the question mark right now. So the next, really the next 12 to 18 months could really isolate a lot of tokens. And I I want you to think about that because when we start to see an isolation of a lot of tokens, guess what happens? Market liquidity starts to shift to tokens that have already started to see this stress. And who's seen more stress than any? XRP, Ripple. So if in case we get a settlement for whatever reason, whether it is a settlement and they just say, hey, here's a slap on the hand, XRP is now traded as X, whether it's a commodity or a security, at least at that point going forward, we'll know exactly where we are. Where some of these projects that we still do not know what the SEC is really kind of rolling out. So there's a lot happening in the next little bit. And unfortunately, it is going to be the XRP or fortunately, the XRP case that really kind of makes their way into the guidance of how this industry is going to move. Let's get into a few questions here uh, for today. Uh, Be Sovereign, thanks for tuning back in. We will never see those emails. I agree with you. I think this goes to uh, most likely a uh, settlement. But the likelihood is they're still going to continue to push back on this through uh, all sorts of court actions. Uh, to avoid this and either extend, and I still understand why they're extending this case. If they know that they are kind of in checkmate right now, why is the SEC continuing to do this? Could be something here in terms of timing. There's a lot of factors here because it could be a scenario where DC is trying to catch up on regulatory environment. I just always wonder if there's some inside you know, moves happening from the, the regulatory side of things. Jay Johnson, in the future, laws will be passed to make uh, you store your cryptocurrency in banks. It will be illegal to hold your own cryptocurrencies. Huh. Man, Jay, that is dystopian right there, my man. <laughs> that, that, so that means you could not put cash in your, in your uh, mattress anymore? I guess that would be the case. If we get to that level, boys and girls, that's a sad day for society. We may see some very interesting things happen for sure. Carlos. SEC is running scared. They're just delaying as much as possible. They look bad. Ripple win this. Uh, you say in first quarter of 2023. Could be. Could be. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. Here we are leaning. Remember, last quarter of the year, almost nothing happened. So really, we only have about 90 days left of getting something done. So the real question would be, can it be done in those 90 days? Uh, okay, Funky Fresh, let's take a look at what you're saying. Level the playing field, even the regulations. I think that will happen, but if you think we're going to deal, le- deal on a level playing field in this space, in a space in which multi, hundreds of trillions of dollars eventually will be at stake here, the I think you're just, you're just mistaken. This is old school finance trying to, again, claw into this market one last time uh, in being able to ship. The difference is, is I think the entities and the people behind what's happening right now in the shift 
of the global finance system is playing a little bit more closer to the vest. But at the same time, we're making some mistakes. And I've talked about that before. We've got to stop doing that. And that includes the companies and the leaders that are out there falling into these, you know, you know, cesspools of greed and causing these major market meltdowns like what we saw with Celsius and Voyager. Hill Dog, if XRP is seen as a commodity, what ripple effects do you see? If they are seen as a commodity, then I think the validity and all of that casework would be utilized as framework for uh, an existing scenario or judgment to be dealt with. So precedence would be started to play in, in, into this, which I believe is one of the reasons they can't let this go to a judgment. If precedence is used in this case, and, and then we do see a scenario of a commodity framework for XRP, that really starts to change things in a big, big way. And the SEC loses a lot of power because that puts the CFTC right in the driver's seat, for sure. Uh, so JTXRP, we will get John Deaton back on soon. Uh, John's a friend of the network, so we do get him on uh, often. Uh, and we talk about it. He, he has a, a great perspective, not only the case, but remember, he's representing uh, tens of thousands of XRP holders. And that's really the bigger thing. Remember, he won uh, that amicus brief here not recent, not too long ago where he himself would be still uh, able to represent and present uh, in the case, which was something done uh, kind of interestingly enough. If you're following the case close enough, basically what happened was the SEC called Deaton out by name in the report or in the, uh, uh, the, the filing and it was the first time, you know, that this had ever really been done before in a federal case where they were actually afraid of an attorney, which was in crazy. So I think XRP, or I should say Deaton, kind of has their number at least starting to set this up because, again, there could be some uh, civil issues right here in terms of all the XRP holders. So good stuff. Captain Kurt, uh, Ripple will be a liquidity provider for crypto exchanges. Could be. Uh, could definitely go to that level. Uh, sold my XRP. Sold my car for my XRP. Man, you are all in. Listen, guys, I do not recommend making those kinds of moves just right now. You just, those are those are all in moves and you've got to be careful right now. And the thing I always tell people, and again, not financial advice. And the key here is, is never put in more than you are comfortable losing. And, and that's the way I look at crypto or any volatile asset. And, and it, look at stocks, certain Stocks, now, maybe not necessarily go to zero, even though there are many that have 90% correction in Peloton. There's many others out there that have had that same kind of scenario. Never over over uh, expose yourself overall. Uh, UP Trade, uh, it's all about paying. Yes, bribes, people who make things legal. Yeah, you're right. Wells Fargo is working with Ripple. Yes, they are. That's a good one. Uh, all right, so where do you find charts like that? I'm assuming you meant of all the ones who were. So we have a team of researchers that's constantly scouring. Plus, we're also looking at sentiment data and activity on social, which usually directs us a little bit. And then we pour out our own sentiment data, so it helps us kind of get an analysis together. That's how we do it. Uh, fear of lawsuit on top of people not knowing how to buy or things uh, it thinks it's illegal to buy. I think, yeah, th that's another factor. I think once we see uh, this scenario kind of resolve with the SEC and XRP, you're going to see some pent-up demand start to move to the market. And I think that will be a scenario where all you people holding XRP could really be in a good position. I do want to get into the uh, sentiment for XRP real quick. Let me go over here to Top Crypto. 
we will pull it up for you. Let's jump over to XRP. Because it, it moved a little bit. It had been trending down and then had a nice little jump. Yeah, so right here, uh, which is trending right the white line, so you guys understand, that's the overall market uh, that we look in. And we have a little bit of downtrend on the overall market right now. That's not anything major, but it is a little bit downward trend. Sentiment right there, though, on XRP is slightly above. So it's ticked up just a little bit. Again, I think there are some movements. Again, price action is usually caused in this market, not by fundamentals, but by community action. As you guys know, uh, we do watch uh, amplification, which has been separating a little bit from XRP's top line sentiment. Uh, and it is starting to flatline a little bit. In fact, it's a little bit down. So anytime I start to see this will paint itself out on Monday, uh, whether or not we do see a downtrend in terms of the token for XRP. Remember, it's tied a little bit to what's happening in Bitcoin and Ethereum, so it does have some, uh, some variance there. All right, you guys, if you're listening in over on the podcast right now, jump in over here on the YouTube channel. It's where we do all these live streams. We'll drop in charts, give you guys additional research, find a lot of stuff for you that saves you a ton of time, and then give you some opinion and our own internal research data to hopefully set you on your course in doing your own portfolio because everybody's portfolio is a little different, so not financial advice. But do get over here. This is the place to come. Join the Diamond Circle. It's a free email group. You also get access to AMAs and some other stuff that we do on the website, so it's really easy to join. Just click the link below. And don't forget, if you want to reach me, it's out on Twitter at Paul Barron. We'll catch you next time right here on TechBack. Audio Jungle.